Morning, everybody. Thanks, you guys. Awesome. Hey, uh, do you ever feel like that? The beginning of that song, first words, I feel like I don't belong, which is so off to who we are at Lakeside Church because we have, we have a little slogan that, that we want to be true of us, right? Our, our, kind of our theme is begin, belong, right? Can you belong in there? Belong and become, become like Jesus. Like the whole thing we want to do is help you belong in the community and into Christ and all that thing. And, and yet we often feel like an alien. And I don't know if the lyrics kind of describe your life, but they describe my life. When I look at my life in this world, I go, I'm an alien. Or, I mean, not from like, not waiting for the mothership or something, but you know, but, I, but I'm an outsider. I'm, a, I'm an alien. I'm an exile. That's literally what I would describe from scripture. I'm an exile. I live in a world that is far, far, far from my home. I feel like I live far from home. Because I live in a world where a bunch of Jesus followers can be on a bus caravan to a monastery in Egypt when mass gunmen will pull out and shoot up the bus, 22 people die. On their way to a prayer retreat? What kind of a world is that? Or a bunch of teenagers can be in a concert in Manchester, England, and someone brings a bomb so they can detonate it, and they become a suicide bomber and take out 22 people, many of whom are young people. I'm an alien in that kind of a world. That's not the world I would design. It's not the kind of world I want to be living in. Or just stop for a minute and go, really, there's such a thing as suicide bombers? That's a thing? That's the world we live in. That's this world. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an alien to that world. And you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus to go, man, I'm an alien to that world. That's not my kind of a place. That's not the place that I want to exist. I don't want that to happen in my community. I don't want that to happen in my world. Ever, anywhere. I'm an alien to that. Well, we're talking these days about... Uh, what it looks like to be in exile and to live by faith in exile. There are, there are stories in the Bible where these, where these people live their lives, and they actually literally live them as exiles. They were, they were born in one country, in their case, the nation of Israel, but they were all taken away somehow to another place, and they lived their lives in exile, far from home. And that's a literal picture of what for us is sort of a metaphor of what our life looks like and that we live far from home all the time. And how do you live by faith in exile in this world that is so far from the kind of world that we would design if we could design it? Last weekend, as we launched this series, Faith in Exile, we learned some lessons of living in exile, and I want to start with these for you today, just by way of reminder. We learned these things. When living in exile, number one, remember who the real king is. Because we get so distracted by who the kings are in our world and who the presidents are in our world and who the governors are in our world. We get so distracted by those things that we forget who the real king is. When living in exile, remember who the real king is. It is always God. Secondly, when, when living in exile, remember to look for God in the dark spots. We like the shiny things. We like the bright spots. We think we see God better in the bright spots, but really God shows up. Every time it's dark, God shows up. We sometimes have to look for him there, but he's right there. Remember God in the dark spots, especially. And number three, when living in exile, 
find a way to save lives. That's, that's why God has you here, that you would find a way to save lives. And sometimes that's a spiritual salvation. That's what we're talking about when we talk about salvation that comes through Christ. We're talk, talking about this reconciliation between us and God. And we have a chance to offer that to everybody in our oikos, everybody who's in our network, our, our, our group, whatever that thing looks like. We have, a, we have a, a, an opportunity to offer that to them. This reconciliation with God. Find a way to save lives. And sometimes it's not just spiritual. Sometimes it's emotionally finding a way to save lives. Sometimes it's physically finding a way to save lives of others. And that kind of life matters. And that's why God has us in this world. That's why we live in this dark place so that we bring light to it. That's the goal. Those are some of the lessons of living in exile. I want to give you another one today as we walk through another story of Scripture. Uh, we're going to look into the Bible in just a moment. I want to pray for us first, and I want to introduce you some, to some characters uh, in a story that we're going to look at today. So let's pray uh, together first, okay? Father in heaven, thanks for my friends here in the room. I'm grateful for them. I'm grateful that in the midst of this dark place, you walk with us. You are with us. You uh, have called us to be light in this world. So thank you for all those things. Lord, we come from a lot of different places today, and uh, in, in whatever place we are, whatever path we're on today, I pray that the path in these next few minutes would steer us closer and closer to you. And for those who are just researching who you are, may, they, may their eyes be open to who you are. May their faith begin to take root and grow and blossom. Lord, for all of us, people that have been walking with you farther, may we come to grips better with who you are in our lives and what you have for us. And Lord, teach us how to live by faith in exile in this place today. Thank you, Lord. We, we trust you through Jesus. Amen. Let me introduce some characters to you in this story. There, there are three men I want you to know today. Their names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you may not have heard of them through the scripture. I'm not really sure. But these three men are really interesting characters. They grew up in Jerusalem. They grew up as the cream of the crop in Jerusalem. They were like the best young men, the best and the brightest young men in their place. They, like if they were in our culture today, they'd apply to Stanford and get in. First draw. They're that kind of young person. And so they're living in Jerusalem, and they've got everything they could want. They've got the best education, the best training, the best opportunities. They are destined for a life of influence and power. They're part of the noble class. Some of them are part of the royal family. And yet at some point in their teenage lives, a, a foreign army comes and occupies their territory, sieges, lays siege to their city, Jerusalem, and they are finally defeated, and these three young men are carried off as captives to another nation known as Babylon. When they get to Babylon, they lose everything. They lose their influence. They lose their power. They lose all the good things that they had before. They lose their hope for the future. And they live, in now, they live now in a world that is totally strange to them. And they are exiles. You may know them by their Babylonian names. Their names usually are called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But those are not the names they were given. Those are not their heart names. Those are not the names that make their face light up when they hear it. Those are just names that the king of Babylon gave them. Their real names, they're given names by their parents. The, the names their faith-filled parents gave them were... Uh, 
Hanania, which literally means, my God has been gracious. And Mishael, which means, my God is incomparable. And Azaria, which means, my God has helped. And when they were named, their parents had this great faith in the, in the God known as Yahweh, the God that brought the people of Israel out of Egypt when they were slaves there and brought them into the promised land. And these parents had got their son, they got their young son. They're like, I'm going to name him a faith-filled name. Like, my God has been gracious. My God has helped me. Or my God is incomparable. And I wonder how these three young men, whose lives were shaped by the faith of their name, I wonder how their faith was doing when they were now slaves in training in exile in Babylon. They were slaves in training. You go, what, what, what does that mean? How much training does it take to be a slave? It's hard to be a slave, but it doesn't take a lot of training. You just, you just do what they say, and that's, that's just how it is. But no, these, these young guys, they were taken into Babylon, and they were supposed to be trained as leaders in training. Though they were slaves, they were going to serve the king of Babylon. His name was Nebuchadnezzar, but, but they were slaves in leadership training. And they were... They were slaves to a man named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was one chapter short of a book. He was on the edge of nutcase. In fact, when you go through the book of Daniel, you'll find out that he comes to nutcase status at some point in his life. He was a man of great ambition. He was a man of great brutality. He was a leader of state-sponsored terrorism. He was known as being flighty and touchy and insecure and bombastic. And the people in his kingdom, the subjects in his kingdom, watched him with fear and terror and sometimes wild anticipation of the next crazy thing he might do. And here our three friends are in exile, subject to this man, King Nebuchadnezzar. I want you to see their story that's found in Daniel chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, pull it out. Look at Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, you can use your smartphone and look at the YouVersion Bible app. The note, we've got some notes in there for you. We've got the scriptures pulled out for you in there so you can see that. Uh, by the way, this is bring your Bible to church month. Yeah, right on. And next month is going to be bring your Bible to church month. So just so you know, that's kind of how this rolls. So if you don't have a Bible today, that's fine. You can listen and follow along, but we'd love to have you bring a Bible with you and be able to see these stories. Listen to the story in Daniel chapter 3, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Don't worry about the cubit yet. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the ruling class and the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
Okay, let's just stop and think about that. King Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image, a statue. It's 60 cubits tall. A cubit is about the length of a man's fingertips to his elbow. And uh, unless you have short arms, that's about 18 inches. So a cubit is 18 inches. So 60 cubits is 90 feet. So here this, here's a statue. It's 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. 9 feet wide is about the size of this center section. It's a little, little narrower in the center section of seats. 9 feet wide, 90 feet tall. The front of our building here out, out front by the front patio is about 33 feet tall. A statue, 90 feet tall, three times the size of our building. And it's out in an open plain. Think about what this looked like. And he puts this, ta- this statue, this gold image out there on the plane, and then he summons the ruling class, all the state traps, prefects, governors, judges, all those dudes. He says, you, you all come out here for the dedication of my statue. Now, this was not an invitation. This was a summons. When we, when we dedicated this building to God, we had a, we had a service for that, and we, we, you know, we invited people to come and join us. And every, you know, it was by invitation, but it was not by invitation only. Anybody could come, but we invited people to come. But we didn't summon them. But here's King Nebuchadnezzar. He gets all of the ruling leaders that he's put in charge of various areas of his government. He summons them to come to the plain of Dura and stand before his statue so the crowd comes out all these leaders all these power brokers are going to come out in front of the power broker who put them in charge his name's nebuchadnezzar and they stand there in front of his statue in fear not that they know what's going to happen but they know the one who summoned them and he was terrifying then a herald gets up an announcer gets like public address announcer gets up and he loudly proclaims to this whole crowd, ladies and gentlemen, here's what's going to happen. You're about to hear a band playing. It's full of harps and pipes and zithers and things. And when you hear the beautiful music, we call it now worship music. When you hear the music, you're going to bow down and worship this 90 foot statue out in the middle of the plain. Does everyone understand? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, we understand. He goes, but in case you don't understand, Anybody who refuses to bow to this statue will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, everybody on the plane that day took that seriously because they knew King Nebuchadnezzar and they knew what the blazing furnace was. We don't really know what the blazing furnace was. I mean, we have furnaces in our house, but the heat is put out by, you know, in the garage or someplace where it gets really hot, and then it comes through the vents at a nice, comfortable 73, you know, or whatever you, whatever you set your thermos. We don't get the whole blazing furnace thing, but probably the blazing furnace that he's describing was a brick kiln. Where this, where this took place in Babylon is out in the desert. It's now in the country of Iraq, but it's out there in the desert, and they didn't have a lot of trees to make houses and buildings and things, and so they made bricks. And to make those bricks strong, they had to fire those bricks. And so they were used to building things that way. And so they had these, these furnaces, these brick kilns around the country. When I was in India a year and a half ago to visit our mission project that we have going on in India, we stopped at a brick factory. The countryside around that village that we, that we sponsor is full of brick factories. 
They're everywhere, and they, and they burn coal, and the, and, the, and the air is horrible to breathe because it's all this coal soot in the air. We stop by this one brick factory. Brick factories are often uh, worked at by people who are indentured servants, someone who somehow got into debt. And when they got into debt, they couldn't get their way out of debt. They couldn't pay their way out of debt, so they go to work for the brick factory owner, and he pays them a certain amount of money, but it turns out he doesn't ever pay them enough money to pay off their debt. So they're in, they're in slavery for the rest of their lives, but they can't even get out of it at the end of their lives. And so they offer their children to the brick maker so that their children can serve to pay off that debt, but they can't pay it off. So they offer their children, and it goes on generation after generation. And they work in these brick factories. It's illegal, but it happens all the time. On our last day, when we, the day before we're getting ready to come back to the airport to come back home, we stopped at a brick factory and walked in, and the owner happened to be there, and he offered us a, we asked for, I'm sure he reluctantly gave it to us, but we got a tour of this brick factory. There are bricks stacked up everywhere. There are people living in these low huts uh, there at the edge of this brick factory, and went up, and, and the kiln is built underground. They build up a roof, an earthen roof, on top of the brick kiln. So he walked up on top of the brick kiln, and I had flat-soled shoes on, and I remember after just a few minutes of being on the top of that brick kiln, my soles of my feet were getting hot. And as we're walking all around, you can see the children in this picture. They're walking on top of bricks. They're barefoot, but they're stepping on bricks because you have to stay on the bricks or your feet will burn. As we're walking along, taking this tour of the brick kiln, the factory owner said to, to our group, he goes, make, make, sure you, make sure you don't walk over there. Walk, walk over here. Don't walk over there. He's pointing about three feet away. Don't walk over there. Well, I, I'm a curious type. <laughs> but I'm not usually the stupid type. So I did, no, I'm not, I did not step where he said don't step because it's already hot. And so I just said, you know, what would happen if we stepped over there? He said, you would go through the roof of the brick kiln, and in less than one second, you would have no leg. It's hot. And the herald in Babylon sets up this announcement. He says, I want you to, you're going to hear the band play, and when you hear the music, you need to bow down and worship that image, or you're going in the brick kiln. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the band and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. There's a theological word for that. Duh. I know I gave you that word. It's like I think we're going to use that word a lot in this series because things, in, things when you're in exile don't add up. You go, that's not how it works. But immediately it says they bowed in worship. Now, do you think that was real worship? You think, when they, you think there's this big image and they go, hey, when you hear the band play, you better bow down in worship or you're going in, the, in, you're going in the brick kiln. You think that's real worship? No, that's just fear. Real gods don't call for worship based on fear. Even when you look through the scriptures and you see content about hell and things like that, that's not about trying to get you to worship God out of fear. You can't. You cannot worship God out of fear because worship literally means to express the worth of something, to express the value of something. You don't express value out of fear. You may comply 
but it's not worship. Well, not everybody complied. Verse 8, at this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the band and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, namely, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. This is the second week in a row we found a tattletale in the story. And these tattlers, these are, the, these are the religious class in Babylon. So there was the ruling class. They were the ones who were called out to bow down to this, to this statue. But then there's the religious class, and they're different. They both have power, but they're different. If you were to go to the country of Iran today, you would find that Iran has just elected or re-elected their national president. The president of, of Iran is a man named Hassan Rouhani. But he is not the supreme leader of that country. He's the president. But the supreme leader's name is Ali Khamenei. He's the religious leader. And the religious leaders have more power than the political leaders. And so here in Babylon, the religious leaders come forward. The astrologers come forward. And they say to the king, hey, not everybody's doing what you said. Now, how do you think King Nebuchadnezzar is going to respond to that? Verse 13. Furious with rage. That's the leadoff. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. This was not an invitation either. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now when you hear the sound of the band and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Nebuchadnezzar is furious at these men. It's like, how how dare you defy me? I told you this is what you have to do and you defied me. But... Never let it be said that I'm not a man of grace. Never let it be said that I'm not a man of generosity. So, you know, I will give you a second chance. And this time, if you hear the band and you bow down, all good. We'll just write that one off as a terrible mistake you made. And we'll never bring it up again unless we need to. I'll give you a second chance. But then he added a second threat and said, you know, but if you don't, that blazing furnace thing is in your future. And Nebuchadnezzar the king knew that this was a religious issue for them. He knew that they were Jewish. He specifically gave them Babylonian names so they would forget about that God who was listed in all of their names. And he said, you know, if you don't bow down to this image and you you end up going in the brick kiln, there is no God who can save you from that. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. This is one of the most courageous paragraphs in the Bible. These three young Jewish believers say to the king of the largest empire on the planet at that time, the most powerful empire in the planet, they said, your majesty, we, we don't need to defend ourselves in front of you regarding this matter. And I'm like... Yes, you do. This is the king. But these men had learned the first lesson of exile. They remember, when living in exile, remember who the real king is. The real king is never the one you can look at. The real king is the king of heaven and earth, not just an empire. When living in exile, remember who the real king is. They go on, they said, you know, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, which is a statement that they didn't believe it was necessarily going to happen, they knew they weren't going to bow, but they said, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, they're, they're thinking, we believe in a God who might save us from that. We might not even get thrown in. They said, if, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. There's a beautiful picture of what faith is. Faith is not knowing God will do something. Faith is believing that he can. And that whichever way he goes, he is good. That's the hard part for us. Because we go, well, when my life goes good, God is good. When my life goes not so good, then God's not so good. That's not how it works. God is good all the time. Believing is not knowing God will but believing God can. That's what faith, faith is. That's what trust is. And these men said, we believe he can. And we think he will. But you should know this, that even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship your image here on the field today. Where does that kind of courage come from? In your life as a follower of Christ, where does that kind of courage come from? Where does that kind of courage exist among us as followers of Jesus? We're followers of Jesus. We're, we're believers in the King of kings and Lord of lords. Where does that kind of courage come from? When you say, you know, you can throw me in a brick kiln if you want. You can throw me in a blazing furnace if you want. But I will not bow down to any God but my God, whom I believe is the living God. Where does that kind of courage come from? Because it, it seems to me like we wimp out a whole lot faster than that so often. And someone puts a little pressure on our faith and we back up. Someone puts a little hiccup in our journey of faith and we, we back off. Now I'm going to let you read the rest of that story yourself. 
because I want to tell you where that kind of courage comes from. Just, I'll, just, I'll just give you a little bit of a heads up. They go in the furnace, and they are rescued, and when they come out of the furnace, not only do they have their legs and arms and all, everything intact, but they don't even smell like smoke. But you can read that for yourselves. I want to know where that kind of faith-filled courage comes from for me and for you. And that's found back in chapter 1. You go back to chapter 1, you'll find that uh, these, these three men, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these three men and another young man, a leader named Daniel, they were all captured at the same time. They're taken off to Babylon. They're now slaves in training, going to be leaders in training in the nation of Babylon. The king tells the steward in charge of all these slaves in training, I want you to give them the best of everything, best food, best training, best of everything. And here's how the story unfolds in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. But Daniel, the fourth young man, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who was assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Which was not a figurative statement. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. The king said to the royal steward, give these men the best, the best of everything. Give them the best food. Give them the best education, the best training, the best literature. Give them the best of everything because I want them to lead in my country. And Daniel and the other three men made a decision. Daniel said, we don't want to defile ourselves with that food. See, they were Jews. And they had God's Old Testament law. They had the law of Moses. And the law of Moses had dietary restrictions. We now call it being kosher. It just means they followed the laws of the diet. Daniel said to the steward, he said, you know, we, we, we don't want to defile ourselves with the king's food. The steward, I'm sure, said, it's really good. There's bacon-wrapped everything. Daniel said, no, we don't, we don't want to defile ourselves with the food. We, we just like vegetables and water. He goes, if I do that, the king's going to have my head. He said, well, let's just, let's just do it for 10 days then. Can we do it for 10 days? You just test us and see, you know, see if we look better than the other guys. And when 10 days are up, nobody looked as good as those four young men. They landed on a touchstone of faith. And because he landed on a touchstone of faith in chapter 1, in a little thing, just your diet, just, just a little bacon. And because they landed on a little thing in chapter 1, in chapter 3, they were able to give this courageous statement to the king. We don't have to respond to you in this. Our God is able to save us even from the brick kiln. Touchstone of faith determined the genuineness of their faith in chapter 3. 
when living in exile, employ a touchstone of faith. You live in exile. I live in exile on this planet. Employ a touchstone of faith. Do you know what a touchstone is? It's a, it's a slab, a small slab of dark stone, black stone that has a grain to it, a little grain. So, not quite mi- microscopic, but it's got a little grain to it like fine sandpaper. And when you take soft metal like gold and you rub it over the touchstone, it leaves a trace behind. And if you're an expert in this, you can tell by the color of the trace that's left behind what the purity level is of the gold that you rubbed over that touchstone. The touchstone demonstrates the genuineness of the metal. When you find a touchstone of faith, it tests the genuineness of your faith. So in effect, a small thing becomes a test and a preparation for the big thing. If you're not, if you're not being faithful to God in the little things, your faith will never stand the test of the big things. When living in exile, employ a touchstone of faith. There are several touchstones of faith in our journey with Christ these days. Baptism is a touchstone of faith. Last Sunday evening, we baptized over 40 people over at Folsom Lake. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. We had, we had an 82-year-old woman be baptized as a follower of Jesus. We had, we had recovering alcoholics being baptized because of their faith in Jesus. We had whole families being baptized together because of their faith in Jesus. We had all these different people being baptized and celebrating their faith in Christ. And it was a touchstone for them. And it's just a small thing. I mean, it's huge in its impact. A baptism represents the idea that we're dying with Christ and we go into the water to demonstrate burial with him and then we come out of the water like a resurrection. That's a big thing, but it doesn't take very long. I mean, from the time you leave the shore and you walk into this ice-cold snow runoff until the time <laughs> we pray for you and then we put you under the water and then you launch back out of it because it's cold and, then, and you're happy because you're like resurrected and then you go back to the shore. That whole time takes about three minutes. But it's a touchstone of faith. It's a small thing that tests the genuineness of your faith for the rest of your life. Communion is a touchstone of faith. Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to have a tendency to forget me. I don't want you to forget me or what I've done. And so I want you to take this meal, this Passover meal, and I want you to think of it every time you participate in it. I want you to think of this bread as my body broken for you. I want you to think of this cup as my blood poured out for you. So that it shapes your life and you remember me and you live based on who I am. It's a touchstone of faith. It's a small thing that tests the genuineness of your faith throughout the rest of your life. There are several kinds of touchstones in our lives that we might do. Some of you, some of you pray before you have a meal. Your family gets together around the table. You stop for a minute and you pray around your meal. That's a touchstone of faith. Sometimes you take that out in public. You take it on the road, you go out to a restaurant, you have, you know, the meal comes to your table, and you go, hey, let's stop for a minute and let's pray together over our meal. You know, it's not because you're worried about what's going on in the kitchen. It's because, you know, it matters to us that we stand firm for Christ even in a restaurant. It's just a small thing, but it's a touchstone of faith. Some of you have a desk at work and you keep your Bible on your desk at work. 
Maybe you read it at lunchtime. Maybe you read it in the morning when you be, you know, before you actually punch in or start your day at work. But you leave it on your desk, and it's, it's a simple thing, but it's a touchstone. It says, I believe in this book and the God who is represented in it. And my Bible's on my desk as a touchstone of my faith because it shapes me. Test the genuineness of my faith. Those little things make a difference when the big things come. Six months ago in November, we launched a series called uh, The Well-Crafted Life. We talked about five different crafts of a well-crafted life as followers of Jesus. We, we, said, we said these are the crafts, uh, scripture and prayer and generosity and connection and service. And we asked you to come to the front. We had tables up front. We said, we want you to take one of the cards that look like this up front. They have a little toolbox on the front of them, and there were some stamps up in the front. We said, we just want you to take a card and stamp it with one of those crafts. And then over the next period of time, whatever that season looks like, just, just keep your card nearby and, and keep your focus on that one craft, whichever one of the five that it might be. And for many of us, those have become touchstones of our faith. We thought maybe this would be a, a good day to go back to those cards because it's been six months and my guess is that some of you don't remember where you put that card. And so we thought maybe we'll just give you another swing at this. Maybe some of you go, yeah, you know, I, I, I started out back in November really focusing on prayer. And this is my story. I, I, I started focusing on prayer and I'm thinking I'm still not done with that. I need to continue on in that journey of focusing on my relationship with God through prayer. Maybe you started on a certain craft back in November. You go, I'm not done with that yet. I need to keep moving forward. Fantastic. Or maybe you go, you know, I've been working on Scripture for the last six months, and I've gotten better at that. I've gotten more engaged with that. And maybe it's time for me to, to engage with serving. I need to serve someone else. And so maybe, that, maybe you need to shift your craft focus right now. There are tables in both sides of the room today. There's a table in the back, long table. There's tables up front. The table's up front have these cards on the table again with the stamps. We brought them back out because we thought maybe, maybe you just want to re-engage that craft or initiate a new craft. So on this side, there are stamps and cards for generosity and prayer and scripture. And on this side, there are there's cards and stamps for service and connection. And in a minute, I'm going to ask you, to, if you want to, you don't have to, but to come forward and go to one of these tables and pick up the card and the stamp that relates to what craft you want to focus on, what touchstone, touchstone you want to put into your life, and stamp the card. Take it back to your seat and write down one or two things on the back of that card. You say, this is what I will do to develop this craft in my life this season. And maybe before you go back to your seat, maybe you go back to the back table, which is where we have communion laid out. We've got freshly baked bread back there. It's going to represent the broken body of Christ for us. We've got juice back there in a bowl that's going to represent the blood of Christ. If you have certain health issues and you need gluten-free or vegan bread or something that's on the ends, those are those, are those offerings. But maybe you want to go back and, and pick up a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, keep your fingers out of the juice, please. Because. And then... Take the bread, take the juice that's in the cup and eat that and remember Christ. It's a touchstone of faith. And if you will build touchstones of faith into your life, 
little things that you do today and you do tomorrow and you do the next day, when the big moments get there for you, you'll stand firm in Christ because you've built these touchstones of faith into your life. So when the music plays, after I pray, make your way to one of the tables, make your way to both of the tables if you like. Let's engage in the touchstones of faith today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you're good all the time. In our lives, Lord, every day you are good. And even when we live in the dark spots and even when we live in exile, you are good and you are powerful and you are able to do what you need to do to rescue your people. And sometimes you choose to rescue us miraculously, amazingly. Sometimes you choose not to because you've got other things you want us to do or learn. But we believe you are able. And Lord, today we want to get up out of our seats just to acknowledge that we believe you are able. For every one of us, may there be some touchstone of faith today. If we're brand new at this thing with Jesus, may this communion table be a reminder, a calling of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Lord, may the crafts of a well-crafted life shape our lives as a touchstone of faith. And may you be honored through us. Lord, thank you. We love you through Jesus. Amen.